You're listening to Level Up with Melissa Zalouf. Welcome back, everyone, to this week's episode of Level Up. Today on the show, we have Vincent Hart de Keating, Managing Director at Homer Games, a mobile games publisher based in Paris. Today on the show, we're going to talk about hypercasual games, that evergreen subject that never seems to die. We want to look at kind of where the genre is today, how has it evolved, people sort of expected it to die or to be a flash in the pan, but clearly it hasn't. But before we jump into that, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and about Homer Games. Both of you started in bid motion, so how and why the transition to becoming a game publisher? Yeah, so me, like, from the beginning, I've always been into gaming. I used to be, like, a big gamer myself. And my first professional experience was actually in a French gaming studio. I was 15. That's early. That's very early. But then, yeah, I started my career by helping creating the Hitfox group, where, at the beginning, we focused on free-to-play games. Quite quickly, it was a rise of mobile, and I created a company for mobile. Later on, I joined Bitmotion, uh, where we were focused on user acquisition technologies for mobile apps. So we did user acquisition, many mobile applications, and a lot of gaming applications as well. And at that time, we started also to do user acquisition for hyper-casual games. So we said, okay, there is a trend, like some companies are achieving great success doing hyper-casual. They are not developing the games, they are not doing the UA themselves, so maybe we can give it a shot. And me, like I've been pushing for years to launch our own mobile apps. So yeah, we decided to go for it, to start with mobile games and hyper-casual games, because we, we saw a big trend here. So initially, beginning of 2018, my colleague Olivier Leba and myself, we started to spend like 10% of our time Contacting developers. I thought you were going to say spending 10% of your time playing hyper casual games just to make sure you found <laughs> the right ones. I actually play a lot now, sometimes more than I should. <laughs> but yeah, we started to spend some of our time working with gaming developers, finding interesting games, and doing a few tests, learning or monetizing that. Because basically, we, we were really strong in user acquisition, knew all the concepts of monetization, uh, but then we needed to improve in the business development, talk with the best developers, and in game design to help them improve their games. Uh, so after a couple of initial tests, May 2018, that's where we decided to invest massively in this project and created the brand for my games and yes since then we published around 10 games four of them have reached the top charts this year in 2019 so that's a really good beginning we now have like a team of 15 people who all love games yeah hopefully we are building better games so you say you have sort of game designers on hand as well We've got monetization ua and game design experts yes. is that the kind of full complement of services that you're offering to a given developer when you're publishing their game yeah i think there are four phases the first one is the human contact that we have with the developer. And then when we have games that show potential, the game design team will work on it to improve all the metrics. And then it falls in the end of the UN monetization team with the support of the creative team. So we have an in-house creative studio that produces like hundreds of creatives per week wow. to support the acquisition of the games. So yeah, I would say that good account management, good relationship, plus game design, plus user acquisition, monetization, and creative capabilities. Those are like the gradients for a successful publishing. And do you find that monetization and user acquisition inside Homer work very closely? together or are they kind of more silent? No, no, no. It's actually one user acquisition and monetization manager per game. So the same person handles both. It's really two sides of the same coin. And for us, it doesn't really make sense to have them separated. I think that's something that's happening across the industry. Certainly, we're seeing it more and more, even in, in larger game companies where the roles were traditionally siloed. More and more, you're having executives who were doing one side take over ownership of the other as well, because growth is approached in a much more holistic manner. But anyway, we should probably start talking about hypercasual. Do you think that the explosion of hypercasual was part of why you guys decided now is the right time to open a publishing studio? Yes, absolutely. This is a new genre, and the specificity of hypercasual today that everybody is a potential hyper-casual player. Hyper-casual game is for everybody. So the market is really huge. So it's a combination of very simple apps, very easy to produce, 
best games are, have been created in a week or maximum months. A massive market and a unique method of work. Uh, I think that's the combination of those three aspects that make it successful today. When I say successful, just looking at the top charts, we see a lot of hyper-casual games today right. here. But it's not only because the games are simple, it's also because there is a very professional method behind it. So I think those three aspects make it successful and that's what was very appealing to us. When you say method, what do you mean? Are you talking about kind of the business model of hypercasual or more the creation of very addictive games with a low barrier to entry? I'm talking about the testing methods. Mm. In hypercasual, to be sure, test absolutely everything before picking a game. And when we have one game that has potential in terms of game designs, we test like tens of variations of the same game. We test like many, many different features. We test absolutely everything and then we pick the best version. Then when it comes to user acquisition, again, we test different bidding systems, different, create a lot of them. Monetization, same, we'll build different waterfalls, we'll test everything, which is great, by the way, with uh, iron source mediation is that there is this AB testing feature. When we want to implement a change, we can test it before it goes live. So the hyper-casual method is based on massive testing and in a very short amount of time. Like testing hundreds of versions of the same app within two weeks is something that most of the companies cannot do usually, but that's something that hyper-casual publisher managed to do. Right, so in many ways, hyper-casual has kind of taken advantage of the increasing sophistication and data available in the industry and testing methods available in the industry today. So there's kind of like a constellation of vital phenomena where you have kind of more people are playing games, hyper-casual publishers have cracked testing in maybe a way that traditional games have yet to do or just weren't doing because they didn't see the need. And you're just moving faster, I guess. Yeah, one thing in comparison to classic games, I would say, when you build a big game, you are blind. You have to build it and then you will see if people like it. Hypercasual, it's the opposite. You build a prototype in 24 hours, and if you see that people like it, then you invest. So that's also like this reversing mm -hmm. that makes hypercasual possible. So that's why it would be impossible to, to have the same processes with very complex apps, because the iterations would take like weeks to get. Right. Marketability is much more a focus of hypercasual process than other more classic games, as you've put it. I don't know if everyone was saying it was going to die, but certainly I think people expected hypercasual or are expecting hypercasual to evolve in some way. I'm not sure if that's necessarily going to be the case. Certainly, the growth you've seen at Homer Games implies that hypercasual has a very generous runway ahead of it still. Do you think we can expect to see the genre die out, evolve? become more casual or more complex in terms of its mechanics. The genre will be there as long as people want to play simple games. I hear a lot of judgment as well on it. If you look at the, the game when it's finished, it looks simple, but it's actually extremely complex what happened behind. And we should not judge because like that's the type of game that people want to play today. As long as the people want to play those games, the genre as itself will be successful. The players on the other end, they will evolve for sure because it's a market where almost no barrier proved it like in six months where some games in the top charts and well, I think the main barriers is like the methods uh, the process the technologies those are barriers yes and we have like really good technologies to do that but that doesn't prevent anyone from entering the market in six months and many people are entering the market so at some point yes there will be a consolidation yes the market will be saturated and what will happen is that some players will die potentially because the fact that we are all bidding for the same users with the price some of us will be able to afford like bidding higher but what's very likely is that any players will move out from hyper casual to explore other gaming genres casual idle uh, speaking of players of hypercasual games, do you think that today your suburban mum who's playing the latest hypercasual game is three or four months later going to start playing a casual game? Is hypercasual kind of a gateway drug for other categories? I really have my doubts. I've heard this a lot of times and I've seen a couple of studies that 
tends to show that this is going to happen and this is happening. But then what I think about my mom, and she's a really good tester, like if she understands how to play the game in three seconds, then I know that the game will probably work. But she won't understand the casual game or mid-core game. And I think this audience will always be more limited than the hyper-casual game audience. So some hyper-casual gamers will convert. So a limited potential for hyper-casual to grow the overall gaming population. So I know you guys are starting to sort of evolve into developing idle and IO games. When did you decide to sort of start diversifying and why? We started very recently mm-hmm. to diversify with idle world. No, this is basically our first attempt to see what we can do outside of purely hyper-casual. The reasoning is simple, like... As we have discussed, like there will be a consolidation, it will be more and more difficult to be super competitive in this industry. The reason, another aspect, is that I think that our competitors in hyper casual they are the best user acquisition and monetization team in the world because of this crazy competition. It pushed all the players in the past year. It started with Voodoo with a lot of professionalism in this area. And now with all the new joiners, we develop like very sophisticated technologies to improve user acquisition and monetization. I think they are way ahead of other verticals. So today we managed to get good results in hypercasual fighting against the best. Tomorrow let's see what we can do against people who didn't have yet to improve their processes that much because they didn't have the same crazy competition. Let's see if we can also adapt our methods. Well, that sounds very smart. I want to talk about Europe and hypercasual because it seems as though there's a high concentration of very, very successful, the most successful hypercasual studios are in Europe. Do you think that's not a coincidence? I've been thinking about that. One of the reasons might be that Ketchup, a French company, started this business model and that the first gaming studios were really used to this business model and to build prototypes, send it to a publisher for just a couple of days. They were probably based in France because of Ketchup and then maybe later in Europe. So then when we have new players coming in, first of all, like the business model is very well known in France for hyper casual and the gaming studios that are educated to this business are there and they were ready to send prototypes to other companies because at that time, like Ketchup, really small team, they could not handle all the requests from the developers. So this created the space for new players. And then those new players like got worldwide attention and now we see players like coming from everywhere. Talking about technologies, you've mentioned several times technology and kind of sophisticated or smart strategy when it comes to user acquisition and monetization are a core part of why any successful game today is successful in part because they're doing those two things really, really well. What tools do you think are kind of critical to home success? Our what we call the auto bidder, so user acquisition tool that will calculate the perfect bid for every campaign at the app level, so a very granular level. Here we are very lucky, we come from Bitmotion, who build technologies for user acquisition and we have the full support of the tech team and they build crazy products in like one, two weeks when we ask them to. Uh, so that really gives us an edge. So right now we inherited from a lot of knowledge and existing technologies developed at Bitmotion for the other clients. We improve them for hyper-casual. So yeah, today we have a tool that tells us exactly how to optimize the water code. We have a tool that tells us exactly which bid to place for which campaign and that can place the bid medically. We have our data science team analyzing the performance of the creatives uh, per campaign. Sounds like a dream. I need this that's, technology team build it for me two weeks later. That's, uh, yeah, the best case sometimes. No, basically our technologies allow us to be precise at scale. That's also the success of hyper-casual. Very precise, massive scale. Massive. I know you guys have also a, a creative studio. What does creative optimization look like at home? You said you guys are producing 100 creatives a week? Uh, per game, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's fairly simple. So initially, when we launch a title, we'll think about like 10, 15 concepts. We think, or we'll use existing concepts that have 
proven successful. And then, of course, we'll measure everything. And if we see that, for instance, a specific message gives a better traction, we try message with a variation of like different uh, videos in the background. If we, again, we will identify the winner and we'll make more iterations, changing like some parameters of this one. And again, and again, and again, until we get like the best possible ad. And at the same time, we'll always like inject in the mix like some new concepts and all the ideas are, are welcome. We have to be creative and then analyze all the performance and more iterations. And does this happen in soft launch as well or only once a game is launched? It starts in soft launch, but the really massive work starts when the game is live. You actually use ad mediation in a very unique and innovative way as part of this focus on testing. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Like We use the cohort report of Iron Source to measure the direct impact of a new version of the app on the LTV of the users directly, which in the end is the the end goal. All the rest, it's intermediary KPIs, like number of impression per session, and so on and so on. The CPM, all that leads to the average revenue per user and the LTV per user. And using this cohort report, we can see instantly if we improve the LTV at D0 or D1, D3, D7 of an app by changing the version. So not only this allows us like to measure the impact of versions, but it also allows us to identify very efficiently potential issues. If in the morning we see using the call report that the LTV D0 dropped, then instantly we have to look into details. If it's related maybe to, to a new network that we implemented in the waterfall and maybe they have issues like uh, showing ads. Might be many other reasons, but we have this kind of alert just by mm -hmm. looking at the call report. I read an interesting article yesterday from Mobile Dev Memo about retiring LTV as a metric, that it kind of belongs to sort of act one of the mobile economy. And act two is just not as fast moving or players are playing for longer and for longer. And so a lifetime can be a much longer concept than it once was. Leaving LTV aside, because I think it's probably a much more complex discussion, what is the most important metric you guys are looking at when you're evaluating the success of a game? And is it internal or external? Is it revenue from inside the game and retention or is a marketability associated metric like IPM if you guys are using it? So what I'm going to say is really not sexy, but we'll also look at profits generated by the game. One important thing to understand is that we, Oma Games, we are a company and we are growing fast, but our partners, the developers, most of the time they are like two people. That's most of the teams we work with. For those people, like a game that is a success will change their life. And if they work with us, we also want them like to reward their trust because today like there are many players and they trusted us, they send the games to us. So that's why also in the end, like we want it for our partners. I think today we give some of the best conditions on the market. It's also because we really want fair deals with the developers and we want them to get enough money to then later produce like the yeah. games of their dream without yeah. having the financial pressure. So yes, in the end, the revenues generated by the game and the profit generated by the game will be very important for us and for the developers we work with. Maybe unsexy, very laudable. Well, thank you very much. That's been a very interesting episode. Tune in next week, guys, for more interesting interviews with game industry executives. Oh, 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 oh,